It was a perfect fall evening. You know what those are like here in Sacramento, right? Just cool enough to take a light jacket or a sweatshirt with you. That sounds kind of nice after the week we've had, doesn't it? We were spending the evening at, at the Little League field. My son was playing winter ball, and we were there to watch the game and just enjoying a Boys playing baseball. I think Chad was probably nine or ten years old. You know, about that age where boys start to really begin to play the game. Their skills start to develop and it starts to get a little bit competitive. And Chad was up to bat and he just drove the ball, line drive over the second baseman's head, all the way to the fence. Even as a little guy, he was fast. He's fast now. I couldn't catch him if I tried. But even then, he was fast. It was a stand-up double from the moment it left the bat. He gets to second base, and he looks like he's been trained over to his coach at third base, and his coach is waving him around. And as fast as he's going, it only takes him just a few steps. He's there. But the third baseman is standing a couple of feet in front of the bag, just standing there waiting for the throw to come in. And so Chad sees him, executes this perfect slide, slides right in until his hooked knee catches the leg of the third baseman and his outreach foot is just short of the bag. Now, it was probably only a second, maybe two. It seemed like an eternity. When the ball finally arrived, the third baseman caught it, reached down, tagged Chad, and the ump called him out. Now, any of you who are baseball fans know what is wrong with this scene. So there's a rule in baseball that says that if you're the defensive player, the, the third baseman, you can't block the path of a runner unless you already have the ball, which the third baseman didn't. And so the right call would have been to call interference on the third baseman and to say that Chad was safe. Now... I would have probably liked to go after the ump. I was smart enough to know that wasn't a good idea, but as I watched Chad kind of walk in from third base, just, you know, you know how boy, you know, his shoulders slump, his head down, walking really slow, I could just tell he was dejected, he was defeated. He'd probably just hit the best hit of his young baseball career, and instead of it being a triple, it was an out. And I just couldn't stand that as a dad. So I, I went over to the dugout and I got down on my knees and I tried to explain to him what had happened, tried to explain the rules to him, make sure that he understood, tried to explain that the ump had made the wrong, wrong call, that he should have been safe. And he just looked at me, he says, but dad, what am I supposed to do? If the ump isn't going to make the right call, what, what difference does it make? I said, well, Chad, if that ever happens again, if you're ever running to a base and there's someone blocking it that doesn't have the ball, you just need to make sure that you slide through them so that your foot gets to the bag. Now, apparently that was the wrong thing to say. I had assumed that the ump who was over at home plate calling balls and strikes was paying attention to the baseball game, but apparently the whole time the ump was paying attention to my conversation with the son because as soon as I said those words... He stopped the game, came running over, and just started yelling at me. Now, I could have diffused the situation. You know, I, could, you know, I know how to, to back up and say, hey, I'm sorry, and just kind of tone things down. What I didn't know was that that umpire, who was a coach of another team in the league, those of you who played Little League know how this all works, and the coach of Chad's team had already a very bad relationship. 
And before I got a chance to say anything in response, Chad's coach had jumped in between us and let a few choice words of his own fly, the kinds of words that you're not supposed to say in front of nine and 10-year-old boys and that you're not allowed to say at a little league field, and he was immediately ejected from the game. Now, when the dust settled, and I'm sitting back in the stands wondering how it all went so wrong, I'm thinking to myself, but I just wanted to help my son get ahead. Have you ever been there? Have you ever done that? Have you ever wanted to help your son or your daughter, one of your children, get ahead? I think most of us probably have. And I think it's because we think, you know, getting ahead is good. And maybe more significantly, sometimes I think we think that the way to get ahead is to get ahead. We're in a series that we've called Meetup. Uh, we're just looking at the encounters that Jesus had. How, how did Jesus interact with the people that he met in hopes that we can get some guidance about how we should interact with the people that we meet? If you want to um, follow along, uh, today I want to explore how Jesus responds to Salome, a mom who wants to help her sons get ahead. And I can't help but wonder if Salome felt like I did that fall evening when everything went so wrong. Uh, this meetup is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 28. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, the words will be up on the screen as well. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Now, that's kind of like reading the first sentence of a novel. Who's Zebedee? And, and is this his wife? And how many sons do they have? I mean, all these questions about who these people are. Now, we know that Jesus had 12 disciples. Now, that was actually common in Jesus' day for someone who was a teacher or a rabbi, as some called Jesus, to invite people to come and learn from them, to follow them, to, to do life with them on a regular basis. And Jesus invited 12 men to do this, to be his disciples or his learners. And, and they went everywhere that he did. And we know that amongst those 12 men, there were two sets of brothers. Both of them, both sets had been fishermen, and both sets had been invited by Jesus to leave their boats and their nets in order to follow him. And, the, and actually, Matthew tells us that James and John had been in the boat with their father Zebedee one day when Jesus walked by, said, follow me. They got up, climbed out of the boat, left their dad behind, and started following Jesus. Now, some scholars believe that their mother's name was Salome. She's mentioned later in the scripture uh, amongst the women that are at the cross, that are, that are there and watch when Jesus dies. And some believe that the reason she's there is that she's actually Mary's sister, Jesus' mother Mary's sister, which means that she would be Jesus' aunt, which also then means that James and John would be Jesus' cousins, which kind of changes this whole scenario, doesn't it? Now it's more like this. Then Salome, Jesus' aunt, came to Jesus with his cousins, James and John, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. That explains a whole lot about what's going on here relationally, doesn't it? What is it you want, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now it gets kind of interesting. 
I want you to give my sons, your cousins, the two most important, two most prominent, two most powerful positions in your kingdom. Now, Jesus taught a lot about kingdom. He was always talking about the kingdom that was coming. And his disciples thought that he meant that he was going to use his power, that power that he did all those miracles with, to make himself a king. And Salome and James and John are asking for positions of power in that kingdom. This mama wants her boys to be the most important ones. This is a bold move. It'd be like you asking the president of the United States, hey, can one of my sons be the vice president and can the other one be the secretary of state? Or going to the CEO of your company and saying, hey, can one of my sons be uh, the, the chief financial officer and can my daughter be the chairman of the board? Or going to the football coach and saying, hey, can one of my sons be the starting quarterback and can the other one be the starting running back? Or you know, maybe you have daughters and you go to the principal and you say, hey, can one of my daughters be the valedictorian and the other one be the salutatorian? Do you get the idea here? She isn't going to the neighbor asking if her kids can have a glass of milk. This is a bold move, a big request designed to get her boys ahead. But will it work? You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm doing to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Jesus doesn't laugh at her request. He doesn't even criticize or condemn her for asking. He just asks James and John, do you really know what you're asking? They think they do. Jesus says they will eventually find out what this means. He tells them, most importantly, that what they're asking for isn't his to give. See, Jesus knows that he will, in fact, become a king, that he will have a kingdom, and that in that kingdom there will be a throne, and there will be seats on the right and on the left, and there will be people to sit in them, but that those seats have already been given away by God. Salome and James and John are asking for something that God has already given to someone else. I believe there's something that we can take away from this meetup, just from this right here. Not every bold move is a God move. Now, Salam's request was a bold move, right? There is no question. It was a big ask, but it wasn't a God move. I mean, the Bible is full of all kinds of people that God asked to do sometimes just crazy things, and people who said, yes, I will. But God wasn't the one asking here. They were. So how do you know when a bold move is a God move? Ask yourself this question. Is this something God wants to or just something only I want? I had to think about those words because I realized that sometimes what I want, God wants too. For example, I want what's best for my children. I would guess that most of you who are parents would agree you want that for your kids. I believe that God wants what's best for my kids too. He and I are in agreement about that. But sometimes I know I want things that just make my life easy, make me comfortable, 
Maybe make me look good. Maybe help me get ahead a little. Sometimes what God wants is none of those things. At Adventure, we talk about bold moves. It's one of our values. We want to be people who make bold moves for God. But how do you know it's a God move? Well, first of all, who's asking? Is God asking? Are you asking? Who's it going to benefit? Is it going to get you ahead? Or is it going to put someone else first? So we're about to see Jesus is going to turn getting ahead all backwards. Because trying to get ahead doesn't just put us on our own path apart from God. It puts us into conflict with other people. Look at verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Of course they were. Can you imagine the argument? Can you imagine you know, these other guys going and saying, who do you think you are to get one of these seats instead of me? And what are you doing going about asking your mom to come and ask you and taking advantage of your relationship with Jesus as your cousin? And I can just hear the volume of the words going up and up and up as 12 men argue about two seats. And at least in my own mind, I picture Jesus speaking up just about as the brawl was going to start. I'll also bet that everyone in this room has experienced that kind of indignation. It's a certain kind of anger. It's the kind of anger we feel when we've been treated unfairly or the anger we feel when someone that we care about has been treated unjustly. It's anger with cause. And it happens to us all the time. It happens in families when one person wants what's good for them but isn't necessarily good for everyone else. It, it happens amongst friends when one person wants to get their way and doesn't care about others. It happens at school when students cheat or try and take advantage of relationships or game the system in order to get ahead. It happens at work when people try to make themselves look good at the expense of others in order to get pay or promotion. And here's why it makes us indignant. You can't get ahead without putting someone else behind. It's just the way it works. I'm a race fan. Some of you know that. <clears throat> uh, on my DVR at home is the British Grand Prix that was on TV at 4 or 5 o'clock this morning, saved to watch later this afternoon. Now, you don't have to be a race fan to understand that the objective of a race is to be the person who gets ahead of all of the other cars and drivers, right? And so the whole race is about each driver trying to get ahead of the driver in front of them. And every time they make a pass and get ahead, what do they do? They put someone else behind. And when that happens, you shouldn't expect them to like it. And when you do it to someone else in life, not in a race, you really shouldn't expect other people to like it. That's the problem with getting ahead. You just can't do it without putting other people behind. Jesus challenges us to rethink the whole thing. Really, to rethink the whole goal of life by asking a simple question. Will this put others ahead 
or will it get me ahead? Listen, in verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus just turned getting ahead all backwards. In Jesus' kingdom, getting ahead isn't how you get ahead. Jesus says, getting behind is how you get ahead. Jesus says, if you want to be a great person, begin by serving. Jesus said some challenging things, right? Things like love your enemies and sell your possessions and give them to the poor. I think this one is right up there. Really? The way to be great is to serve? In, king, in Jesus' kingdom, yes. That's the way it works. Notice that Jesus says, not so with you. Jesus is making a contrast here. See, if you think that what Jesus is saying is that the way to be great in the world, in the kingdom of power, is to serve, that's at best a Machiavellian attempt to manipulate others around you by serving in order to become great. But Jesus isn't talking about that kingdom. He's talking about his kingdom, the kingdom of faith and love and hope. And he's saying, in this kingdom, the greatest people are the people who serve others. And once you understand that, I think it changes the choice. It it might sound like the choice is between being great and being a servant, but it's not. It might be in the kingdom of power. But the real question is, which kingdom do you want to live in? That kingdom? or Jesus' kingdom. And once you make that choice, being great begins with serving. But if I'm really honest, I don't always want to serve. If I'm really honest, a lot of times I like to be served. Now, you know, I, I like doing things to serve others. I mean, especially serving my family. I love to do things for them. But, but even with them, there's times that I get tired or overbooked or overwhelmed, and then even then I wish they were serving me. And then Jesus' words find their way through the noise. If you want to be a great person, begin by serving. What does that really look like? Well, let's just put in a couple of blanks. If you want to be a great blank, begin by serving blank. So let's start with something that all of us are. If you want to be a great child, son, or daughter, begin by serving your parents. Now, Mandy and I have reached that season of life where our parents need us to serve them. Her mom had surgery this week and has a very long recovery ahead of her. My dad has surgery in a couple of weeks, and my brother and I are having to tag team to serve them. My mom has dementia, so my brother's going to go spend the day at home with my mom, and I'm going to go pick up my dad and take him to the hospital and spend the day at the hospital with him. There's no mystery to that. That's just what serving looks like. Your parents might be much younger than ours, or, or maybe just healthier. But I'll bet if you ask yourself the simple question, how could I serve them, the answer would be pretty obvious. But we can flip it around. If you want to be a great parent, begin by serving your children. Now, some of you have young children, and right now you're thinking, are you kidding me? That's all I do. 
I feed them, I bathe them, I change them, I clothe them, I shop for them, I drive them places. It never ends. I remember. But are you serving them? See, really, it's a question of identity. How do you see yourself? Not them. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a servant? See, when we do something that is consistent with our identity, we tend to find that energizing and rewarding. And when we do something that is not consistent with our identity, it it tends to be unpleasant and, and uncomfortable for us. For example, I have friends who, if I ask them the question, are you a runner? Not do you run, are you a runner? They would say, Yes. And if I then ask them how they feel when they run, I'm pretty sure every one of them would say, oh, I love it. It's energizing. It makes me feel better. And they talk about all these benefits that they get from running. If you were to ask me, are you a runner? My answer is a very simple no. If you would then ask me how I feel when I run, I would have one very simple word for you, pain. What's the difference? identity. If you apply that to being a parent, truthfully, you could apply that to any of the roles that you have in your life, you begin to see something significant. Do you see yourself as a servant in that role? Because if you do, you'll find serving your children rewarding because you'll be acting like you'll be doing what you believe you are as a person. Let's tackle a harder one. If you want to be a great spouse, begin by serving your husband or wife. Why is that one harder? I think it's because many people, maybe I could say most people, come into marriage with expectations. Expectations of what the person they're marrying is going to do for them. And when our expectations aren't met, we get really uncomfortable. It's called dissonance. There's a name for it, for what actually happens in our brain. It's kind of like if you went to a restaurant and and you have an expectation at a restaurant, right? You have an expectation that a server will come to your table and bring you a menu. You'll tell the server off the menu what you want. They'll bring you that food, the food you actually requested off the menu, and you'll eat it, and then they'll clean up the dishes when you're done, right? That's what you expect a server to do. But if the server doesn't do that at the restaurant... Your brain has to resolve the conflict between what you believe should happen and what actually happened. And I'll pretty much guarantee that the way you solve it every time is not by changing your expectations of what a server is, but simply deciding that that server is a bad server. The problem's theirs, not yours. See where I'm going? We carry those expectations into marriage. And then our spouse doesn't do what we expect them to do. And we have this dissonant conflict and we have to resolve it somehow. But it couldn't possibly be my problem. They're the one who aren't doing what I expected them to. But what happens if you simply change your expectations? What if your expectation in your marriage isn't to be served at all? What if your expectation in your marriage is to be the one who serves the other? You might still have some dissonance, but when it happens, it'll be because you realize you're not serving. And the solution won't be them. The solution will be 
you to begin serving. What about work? If you want to be a great employee, begin by serving. Maybe you're the boss. If you want to be a great boss, begin by serving your employees. Maybe you're neither. You work for yourself. You want to be a great business, begin by serving your customers. In every case, the difference is your purpose. Why do you do what you do? People work for many reasons, right? Paychecks are a good reason. Most of us need those. But some people work for achievement. Some people uh, work for recognition or status. Maybe you're one of the statistically few people who work at something that you really, truly, and genuinely love. Jesus wants to repurpose your work. He says that the highest purpose for getting out of bed and going to work every morning is serving someone. Uh, I asked permission to say this and I wasn't sure I was going to get it. I'm glad that she said yes. Uh, Mandy is taking a season of sabbatical right now, my wife, but she has spent many years working in retail. If any of you have worked in retail, you understand that this is a business defined by unhappiness. The customers are always unhappy because they expect something that you can't possibly do for them, and the boss is always unhappy because they expect you to do more than it's humanly possible to do. Yet somehow in the middle of that unhappy environment, she would go to work and serve people. Her most rewarding days weren't getting some kind of recognition or having the highest sales. It was always the story about the person that she served. Maybe it was a mom that was in the store setting up a room in her home for her own, or a daughter in her own home for her mother that was coming to live with her because she was sick and needed to be cared for. Maybe it was the widow who was in the store buying things for the new home that she had to move into because her husband had died and she'd had to give up the home that they had lived in together. Uh, Maybe it was the mom whose daughter was getting ready to move around the world to a foreign country or the young man who was very nervous about making his first international trip to try out for a professional soccer team in another country. I was always amazed by how many people she could find to serve at the mall. I hate the mall. But you know what? I'm convinced that any person's limitation on serving is not their own ability. Their limitation on serving is their willingness to see the needs of others and just begin serving them. I could keep going. We could talk about being a great student or a great neighbor or a great friend. There are so many places in our lives, so many roles that we play, and every one of them is an opportunity to begin serving. But what does it look like to start tomorrow morning with a new identity, seeing yourself as a servant? What does it look like to start tomorrow with a new set of expectations to be the one who serves others? To start your day 
with a new purpose, to begin serving. Jesus says, in his kingdom, that's the life of a great person. Where will you begin? You pray with me. Lord, we're grateful that you came to serve us. Jesus, you demonstrated clearly that there is nothing that you would hold back from us. You gave your very life in service to us. But you wanted that to be an example. So as we are grateful, Lord, help us to also understand that you really want us to live the same way. Lord, give us the willingness to let go of whatever it is that we hold on inside that wants to be served. Lord, give us the courage to grab and seize on to that new identity, an identity that says, I'm a servant just like you. And Lord, I pray that you would show each of us where we could begin. Who are the people? Where is the place? How can we serve in your name? Amen.